Hi, I'm Noah Laurie, and this is Clarkston Conversations, a conversation show where the world comes together. What is community? Is community a place? A people? Our work at the Clarkston Community Center is all about the building of community. It's in our name, after all. Still, I don't always know if it's intuitive. In a town with such abiding diversity, there are so many different people from so many different places. And yet, we all occupy the same few square feet of space, where we sit, where we stand. And therein, I think, lies the answer. Community is a place and a people, together. You cannot have community without both components. Even when people are displaced and places are destroyed, both live on in the memory of the community. That first set of questions invites a second. How does one build community? How does one hold a community together? That work is not easy. It's complex. It's long. Togetherness is not something that happens magically. It's something we have to labor for, that we have to earn each and every day. Luckily, there are those hard at work already, doing the job of bringing people together. As my guest today tells me, the answer to what is who. Aaron Litchkey is a coordinator and the executive director for Citizen Advocacy of Atlanta and DeKalb County a nonprofit that brings together protégés with varying abilities and disabilities with citizen advocates who are present to stand alongside them. As you'll hear in our conversation, this pairing isn't always obvious to those on the outside looking in, but it makes all the sense in the world to those who decide to take part. Powered by people, citizen advocacy stands firm in answering the what of community building with the who of everyday neighbors. From the Clarkson Community Center Media Network, I'd like to welcome you to our show. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, or for any of our work at the Clarkson Community Center, you can always reach me at my email address, communications at clarksoncommunitycenter.org. All right, Aaron Litchke, welcome to the podcast. Um, Let's start uh with you um you have been a resident of clarkston is that right yeah i actually got to move here and we me and my wife live here in clarkston now uh we moved it's been almost a year and a half now so um but i've been involved in clarkston for a lot longer so it it was more like when we finally found a house and hopefully live here for the long term (laughs) i was like i felt like i was actually coming home down roots even though this was the first time I was actually living here in Clarkston. Gotcha. So the first time living here in Clarkston, but you've worked in Clarkston before now. Why why don't you tell us just a little bit about your background, maybe? Yeah, so, um, well, you know, we'll we'll start from where I'm from. So I've lived in Georgia most of my life. Uh, I grew up in Fayetteville, which is about, you know, 45 minutes south of here. Um, But, you know, it was, I've always been searching to find, you know, places where there's people that weren't just like me. Um, so right. that, that eventually took me up to the Atlanta area. I went to Georgia State University. Um, and then after I graduated, uh, I just happened to 
try to be figuring out what I was going to do with my career. Um, and one of my friends uh, asked if she could introduce me to Omar Shakay out here in Clarkston. Um, mm. That friend is Cassie LaMarie. Uh, a lot of people in Clarkston also know her. She currently works at the Georgia Village Project in Decatur, or um, Global Village Project, sorry. Um, and and she, she was just hearing about what I was doing, what I was interested in, and she wanted me to talk to Omar about possibly working with him at the after school with the Somali American Community Center. Um, so I, I remember taking my first trip out here to Clarkston. Um, I'd never been far this east in the city. <laughs> uh, I'd slowly been moving there, but I, but I came out here, um, and the first place I, I got to was Somali Plaza. Uh, so it was like right. walking into a different space and world, but like I said, even right. from that day, I felt like home. Right, right. It's coming out east, a whole new world. Um, and so you worked at the with the Somali after school program for how long was that? Yeah, so um, for about two years, I ran the after school program. Uh, at that time, we were we were doing it at Clarkson First Baptist Church. Um, you know, with and from there, I just started to to get to connect get to know the community more mm -hmm. um you know i got the the mama amina tour uh mm. through clarkston <laughs> to meet everybody um and just started doing work and spending more time out here and spending more time with omar uh to where at that point i was able to help uh then write grants in which we got a, a federal grant uh for the small american community center and that's that's when i transitioned to kind of run a bigger program um, kind of the, the back-end stuff so Omar and others mm -hmm. could do their work. Um, and then I just kind of oversaw and, and helped the, the after-school program go for a few more years. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you said when you left um, Fayetteville or Fayette County, you were looking for, for something different. Did you, did you think that something different would be a place like Clarkson would be working with um, Somali groups? Or, or what did you, you think at that point in your life? Um, would look like uh, to tell you the truth I was you know I was a college kid 20 21 years old I guess at that time um, when I when I got to Clarkston I was I was 23 um, I'd, I'd started having some international experience um, so it, you know in college I'd gotten to study abroad and go through Europe and then right before I started with, with um, out here in Clarkston I, I had done a an international youth peace education camp uh, for an organization called CISV up in Massachusetts. There's also a, cha a local chapter here in Atlanta as well. Um, so I, I, I knew that I wanted to find something purposeful in my mm -hmm. life, and I always have had this, this passion or kind of urge, something just in me to go find people I don't know and hear and listen to their stories and, and see, see how I, where I could use my skills and uh, who I am to see if we can make a little change in our community. Um, and that's really what's driven me kind of weaving and wandering from place <laughs> to place. Um, All across the that, metro that's area. That's led me to yeah. what I do now. So it's been, <laughs> I guess it's just that internal drive uh, to, to meet new people, connect right. and hear, hear people's different stories. Um, so that's, I think I, I found and kind of fully figured that out about who I was because of Clarkston, and, and it's it really made me who I am, right. or or brought out the parts that I was I was searching for right. uh, in my younger life. Right, it's transformative in that respect. Yeah, oh, for sure. Right. I think I think it's transformative for anybody to actually spend real time out here, mm -hmm. um, because it's an It's such a unique opportunity 
to be engrossed, you know, still in the American culture, but with mm-hmm. all these other cultures around. Um, you don't have to get on a plane and travel thousands of miles to experience, you know, different pockets. And it's a, it's a really unique opportunity. And, you know, I try to tell as many people as possible, like, don't just come out to, to grab a coffee one day, like walk around, going in all the shops, yeah. see the people walking and talk to people. Um, and I think that's a transformative experience for everybody. For sure. For sure. Um, so you said you came out here. I, I just, I think that's kind of fascinating. Uh, you came mm-hmm. out here, you're about 21, 22, 23, yeah. right? Um, full disclosure, I'm 23 right now. So it's, oh, hey, it's funny. Yeah. It's sort of like looking in the mirror maybe a little bit. Um, <laughs> That, uh, yeah, and I, I feel, I think, a lot of the same things that, that you're feeling, this kind of the distinctiveness of, of this place and how that's um, informed me um, and informed my own um, development, right, as well as, um, you know, hopefully I've done some good here, too, uh, <laughs> leaving some good behind me. Um, I, I'm curious, though, um, if, you know, what you were thinking or how you were thinking when you were that that 23 year old first come to Clarkston um Mm -hmm. I mean did it take time to let that that transformation really settle in or did you take to it right away (laughs) (laughs) um yeah I mean it's it's definitely a learning a learning journey um but if you want to take that learning journey very fast um go tell Omar Shakay that you're willing to help him with something um and he'll throw you right in the mix um, and I know a lot of people know Omar, but so yeah, yeah, I met Omar one week and two weeks later, he's dropping off a bunch of kids <laughs> that, you know, speak a different he's level right into of it. English that, uh, are from all over. Like it wasn't just Somali, but Ethiopian, um, you know, we had, uh, at that point some Bhutanese and a bunch of different cultures. So um, I think I showed up that day. Uh, my, my mom had a bunch of teaching supplies, so I'd raided her, her closet. I had a backpack of supplies mm-hmm. um, and a room with some tables um, mm. and went. Um, so, so much of, of how I learned, what I learned uh, probably happened in that room in the first few months. Um, it was definitely, you know, I, I had done tutoring and different things, you know, in the nice white neighborhoods of Fayetteville, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a completely different experience. Um, but I think, like I said, like that searching nature is kind of like, oh, okay, I found it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it really just brought like, well, I don't want it to end these four, these three hours a day, yeah. or four days a week. Uh, so you know, originally I started you know <laughs> working twelve hours a week mm-hmm. uh, out here. Um, Luckily, Atlanta was a lot more affordable back then. Uh, <laughs> so that, that led me yeah. to like, all right, not just, you know, I'm learning kind of these stories through the, these kids and their families, um, you know, actually driving through the apartments to pick up certain one of them and take them home. Mm-hmm. Um, just the, the amazing part of being such me being the outsider and being invited in mm-hmm. to someone's homes um, that might not have a whole lot, mm-hmm. but there's tea and water and they're so inviting. Um, and, and that taught me like, okay, well, you know, it's it, this new experience of being the other in this community. I, I can see where people are so welcoming in here that I wanted to find the experience more. So I found, I found ways to do that. And here you are today. Yeah. Um, you've talked a lot about stories and storytelling. Um, yeah. In your mind, what is 
the power of storytelling? Yeah. Um, well, I really this is really pertinent for me. There's a, a lot of where I'm thinking and, and what I do is, you know, I'd actually consider myself a storyteller. Um, and, and storyteller in a different sense. You know, there's the power of storytelling can can be a lot of different things. You can, um, you know. One of the first things is, you know, start talking about who you are. If you can truly be vulnerable and talk to people and tell your own story to people, then people are, are more willing to, to tell you their full story. Um, so there's a good place to start there. And, and that's how you make powerful connections. And I know we'll talk a lot more about that as we get, get into my work at Citizen Advocacy. But, you know, the power of stories for me is that everybody has, has something unique. They have gifts, experiences that we can all benefit from. But not everybody has the opportunities uh, to share their gifts or their stories or their experiences with others. And I truly believe when a, a community is truly at its best, when everybody has those opportunities and we're learning and, and, and learning about experiences from the people around us. Um, so I think it has the power to not only make a small community like Clarkston, but even, even you know, doing more of that storytelling opening more opportunities for more people to, to learn from other people's experiences and gifts and talents, that can really create a, a societal change that uh, I think most of us in America right now uh, would hope would uh, happen faster than it probably will. Right, definitely. There's that word again, transformation, mm -hmm. right? Um, let's get into it then a little bit about your, your work at Citizen Advocacy and maybe how how you're telling that story, how we're, you're making space to um, let other people tell their stories, right? Yeah. So um, you just give us a bit of um, a bit of the background. What is citizen advocacy? How did it start? What's it doing yeah. now? Um, so while working in Clarkston, I got to got to know Roberta Malavenda very very well. Um, in fact, the last three two and a half years that I was actually working at Small American Community Center, we shared an office space. So a lot of the times, you know, she really became a mentor and. And the ideas and the way that she flows and meets people in community, uh, which I know most people in Clarkson have probably experienced at one time or another, um, you know, I was learning from her. Um, and it just so happened, a lot of some of these ideas, the ideas of, of community building that she was using here in Clarkson and in the early learning environment um, were part of this bigger idea, this bigger thing about how community development works. Um, and it came down to it is without even knowing, um, Roberta actually helped open all the citizen advocacy offices in the state of Georgia 45 years ago. So um, while I didn't even know it at the time or I wasn't even fully connected with citizen advocacy at the time, I was learning a lot of these ideas about how, how we think about moving through community from her. Um, and I continue to do that now. And she still is a great friend and a, and a mentor to me. So, <laughs> what is citizen advocacy? Oh man. So, at its baseline, citizen advocacy works to provide protection and advocacy to people with developmental disabilities by initiating and supporting one-on-one -on -one rela uh, advocacy relationship matches between that person with a disability who is at risk of or experiencing abuse, neglect, and or social isolation. Um, and what how that's done is through that relationship and having just an ordinary citizen come alongside somebody um, living with those experiences, 
that now person who we call the advocate gets to know them well enough that they can then represent their interests as if they were their own. So I like to, to really break this down and say, mm-hmm. you know, think about your own life. You know, we all have right. different people in our life when, some, when we're experiencing something we go to. Now, a lot of us might have many people in our life that we go to. Um, you know, I like to say, you know, there's things that I call my family for, that I call my mom to get support from. Um, there's things I call my sister. Um, but I also have friends that I call for other reasons. You know, I don't like to talk to my, about my dating life to my mom and my sister. Uh, I'm now married, sure. so I don't have to talk about that. Uh, but now my, you know, <laughs> might now talk to them about my married life as, you know, they have my mom has more experience with marriage than most of my friends right <laughs> uh, but I have my friends there and like I just said I you know I have when I'm thinking about my work and community when I when I've kind of hit hard spots you know I've I have people in my life that I go talk to so like I'll call up Roberta and be like let's get coffee uh, or more recently um, and I'm very thankful for this you know I'll schedule a meeting with Kitty at Refuge Coffee and we'll just talk about you know struggles and all these things and be there for each other um, and it's not anything paid. It's, it's not anything that's volunteer work. It's just simply people supporting each other. So what happens, you know, and it's been happening through all of time in history with people with disabilities, is that they are pushed to the very edges of society. Um, they are segregated and congregated into special programs. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't like to use the word special, but, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, so they have their own look at school, you know, special education. It's separate right. from everybody else at school. So they're not, what happens there is, is we, we as a society and culture have made it harder for them to make those natural connections of friends and support within their own life and community. Mm-hmm. So citizen advocacy says, okay, we see that this is a root problem. We know people need people in their lives. And people with disabilities aren't given the opportunities to naturally find these people that will support them throughout their whole lives. Let's add a little intentionality and start with one person and find one person that can come into their life, not just for a few weeks or to do a project or anything like that, but be there, get to know them, and be there over the long haul. So... A lot of the relationships that we we initiate and start have every intention of being lifelong. It's interesting um, in that, you know, we're talking about um, going out into the community and then also you you were saying before the the concept of um, seeing um, folks beyond yourself as as the other than yourself being the other um, Mm -hmm. in a very sociological, I think, (laughs) context. but you know to to draw away from those outside of us and draw back to to our, ourselves for a minute um yeah. and think uh you know who yeah who is that person in your life that you 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 talk to and it's um you know framing it in that way is revelatory uh mm-hmm. i think um because i certainly yeah i have my parents who i will call about yeah certain things um dating yes probably <laughs> probably not up there it's probably yeah, yeah where i go to um peers friends my, more my own age right um but yeah that that network of social support um right. you're right insofar as it's not paid it's not even really volu- yeah volunteer work it's you know those are they're voluntary associations that kind of just 
at least as we see it, naturally organically arise, um, and especially in the way that people with disabilities can be segregated in society, um, makes total sense that that same sort of um, those same sort of connections may not form, right? right. Um, like I think I think back to you know my own experience in in school, and like as you said with um, uh, kids, you know, classmates of mine who I knew were in the you know quote unquote special ed program, right? Right. Um, and they were you know there was like an acknowledgement that. Um, you know, not to be like cruel to them or anything like that, but that they were different, that they were other, right? Um, and that they were they were split out away from the rest of us in the class in in yeah. such a way that didn't allow us to to get to know them, um, save for maybe in a few you know particular instances, right? Um, so um, yeah, so yeah, so I think that like saying <laughs> is revelatory. Well I, well, I think going off that, you know, that is. The work uh, and how why Citizen House was created was specifically there, and, mm-hmm. and looking at how how does society naturally see people that are different, mm-hmm. um, and so somebody, you know, Citizen Advocacy is over forty five years old right now, mm-hmm. um, and before that, the work that led to Citizen Advocacy started long before that. Um, and specifically, it, it was created from the work of Wolf Wolfensberger. Um, and Wolf, um, he, w- he was German, Jewish descent. His family had escaped Germany during the Holocaust. So it's being, at, you know, he was young during that time period, but that influenced mm-hmm. him and, and really wanting to look and see what are these, um, you know, social aspects that are, that are really leading to, to the harm of people that because they're being labeled different. Mm-hmm. Um, and his work ended up, you know, it, it went through a few stages. Uh, he worked in, in Toronto or, or in Canada. He worked in Nebraska and, and New York. And specifically, he decided to look at one population, and that was people with disabilities. And the reason why is that, you know, there's a lot of people that get marginalized or, or as Wolf would say, socially devalued in our society, mm-hmm. right? We can pick a number of them uh, right here in Georgia and Atlanta but he wanted to see where is the most universal that no matter what through time history culture of people that were always socially devalued or marginalized and if you look at disability across time history everything no matter where you are the people with disabilities have always been socially devalued um so uh it it the work he did was through the lens of disability, but it's showing the same social mechanisms that are used to devalue any group, whether it be race, uh, sexual preference, sexual orientation, gender identity, whatever you're talking about, immigrants, uh, different nationalities, it's the same social process. We just happen to focus on people with uh, disabilities. And right. yeah, so what, what ended up, happening is Wolf created what he called social role valorization Mm. and what social role valorization is is studying and looking at how society socially devalues people Mm -hmm. and then thinking about how that can be changed so so we can help people live their biggest best lives Um, so the the main mechanism is it's what we already talked about you know these different mechanisms in society create wounds for people with disabilities and Wolf has a list of, of 10 to 18 key wounds, but some of the big ones are deviancy. 
So, or dangerous, <laughs> or, um, you know, that odd, that alien, that other. Mm. Yeah, these are wounds. And, and when you start seeing when someone is perceived to be these different deficiency language models, you start stacking those wounds. And the more of those wounds that are stacked on an individual, um, the less safe they are, the mm -hmm. more likely that they will be harmed or be at risk of abuse, neglect, um, all of those things. And ultimately leading to that, um, to what De uh, Wolf deemed a term called death-making, which is the more wounds that are stacked, people's lives are in more danger and those, those societal mechanisms are hastening people's deaths. It's making them happen quicker. Mm -hmm. No individual person is responsible for someone dying, mm -hmm. but we see people with disabilities, they, they live shorter times, not because of health most of the time, mm -hmm. just because of the situations that they're in. Um, so that is the baseline of, of, the, of why Wolf started thinking about, like how can we do this in the community? Um, so most of his work was academic, trying to help human services, people that are providing that care um, mm -hmm. in, in, in government systems and, and all those places, how they could do it better by, by identifying and seeing people as more than just their deficiencies or their wounds and seeing them as a whole person. But uh, when it came down to it, Wolf basically said, if, if it could be done perfectly, we wouldn't even need these human services our community could be doing it and that because that's how right. we all mm -hmm. get get this care and provision right. that we need we we get that so right. if we can make that happen it's a natural form and right. that's when he created citizen advocacy right right i'm not calling up social services again to ask about my dating life it's you know <laughs> it's the, those organic relationships i have with with friends um i want to go back to the idea of death making maybe just for a moment yeah. um and because that that sounds quite grave right yeah um and yet um i think it's also intuitive in a certain sense i think um you know not just in terms of of people with disabilities but um across the board we hear a lot about um an epidemic of loneliness in the united states um deteriorating mental health right right exactly. um, um i mean just just to, to point in there like isolation is one of the most dangerous things for any human being mm. um it can it leads you know to poor health poor mental health and all of that so and there's a lot of reasons why people are isolated um even people that you know say they'd rather be alone they're not isolated they find other ways to express and find community it might mm -hmm. not be person to person but if they don't have if you don't have opportunities to to be you know part of a community more than just yourself mm -hmm. then that's shown through everything like you said with mental health health everything um creates creates um you know bad things to happen right it, it isolation is is to me one of the most dangerous things that that we can experience right as a, as a human being right and it's it has all these knock-on effects, right? Um, or is um, accelerates a lot of these um, things that we would say are, you know, negative for society or disadvantageous for society um, and for our, um, our continued existence in it. But I wonder, um, given the the weight of that, the gravity of that, is is the antidote to that as simple as 
let's go get a cup of coffee once a week. Is it uh, not to say that that's all that citizen advocacy yeah. is, but um, there are some some might say um, I don't know if I'm there yet, but some might say that that seems too simple or too far fetched a, a solution. Well, yeah, no, it's it it's a beginning. So, um, all right, let's go back. Let's go back to dating, right? Like, <laughs> uh, building a, a relationship with somebody like that and getting to know them, which could turn into a lifelong place where you become a, the number one person in your partner's life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really doing all this, it might have just started with a cup of coffee. Uh, a lot of dates start with a cup of coffee. Or at the bar, it can be it can be a lot of places, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so so that that's a beginning, um, but really what it what it starts with is is someone taking the time to consistently get to know somebody else. That that is the if you're looking for the simple an- answer, that's the antidote. But I do want to say, citizen advocacy does know, and we know that you know this isn't going to fix all the problems. There's a lot of other other mechanisms that can't do that. So we we think we have one really good solution, but it's one tiny tiny part uh, of the future. You know, um, we need we need organizations and people to advocate on the state and legislative level um, for different things. Um, you know, we we've had the ADA and the Olmstead decision that has given a lot more rights to people with disabilities, but mm-hmm. that work continues to need to grow. Um, for citizen advocacy, we're not the people trying to do that part of it. We're 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 looking at one person at a time to build this influence, and then with enough of the of these people showing up in different places in the community, we hope to cr- for people to see a model that this isn't odd or weird to see these two people hanging out that might look completely different and have come from completely different backgrounds, but that's just normal. And it might open up other people's opportunities to kind of have that itch to go meet somebody that they might not normally um, uh, see every day, and and that's that that's how you create the, the, these small buildups that can snowball into a better future for our community. So, in that light, um, you mentioned uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, you mentioned the the Olmstead decision um, at the Supreme Court. Um, those are big, very like very big, um, yes. nationally like impactful uh, uh, pieces of legislation, um, judicial decisions. Um, so, what what you're talking about with citizen advocacy? is small or at least starts small right right uh so the way i like to explain this is is i i think of advocacy in two ways there's big a advocacy you know that is legislative Mm. that's your your rallies that that's the marching in the streets advocacy work very very important and when you continue to do that but then there's what i call the little a advocacy and that's the community advocacy uh that's the individual people uh standing up for each other on a you know on a one-to-one basis and a small group basis that's that's supporting the parent that wants to make a change in their school district in their at their personal school to me both both of them are part of the equation citizen advocacy specifically works in where i call little a advocacy and that's the more personalized community advocacy role so i think i asked you before um before we started recording um is this scalable um, <laughs> um, 
Because it sounds like you guys are doing really cool work. And I think a natural inclination maybe of our being here, right, in larger systems is is to think about how, you know, how we grow good ideas into larger systems. But maybe the question isn't, is this replicable, but should, should it be replicable? Um, or scalable, I should say. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, so that I'm going to give a, a, an answer that is not, not so concrete, yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd love to so hear it. Citizen Advocacy, over the, over the years, you know, in the 80s, there was hundreds of, program, of Citizen Advocacy programs or offices mm. around the United States, Canada, and, and around the world. Um, there, there's a lot fewer <laughs> now these days, but there are citizen advocacy programs still in Australia, New Zealand, England, Ireland, Canada, um, and several states here in the U.S. But I want to put one caveat. So we're working, citizen advocacy programs offices work under these same principles um, and ideas and do the same work, right, to, to initiate these one-on-one relationship matches. But every single office is going to look different. And, and, and the process of doing that is going to look different because the way that it works and that it's replicable is that it has each office has to represent and look like the community that it's in. So here in Georgia, we have offices, you know, I'm in the Atlanta and DeKalb office. Um, we have uh, in Athens, Savannah, Macon, um, in Milledgeville. And, you know, we've had more offices in the past. Each one of us, you know, we're, we're, we're one of the biggest cores of citizen advocacy here in Georgia together, and, and we get to talk and, and think about these ideas um, together, but each one of our communities is different and unique. So from, from board makeup of our board, you know, each one of those are going to look different. And then if you, if you look at all those other cities, you know, it, the model was kind of the smaller community model. And then you look at what I said, where, where we are, mm-hmm. and it, we work in all of Fulton and DeKalb County in a large metropolitan area. Um, some of the things might look different, and they need to and they have to be. Because if we try to replicate and scale the exact process to everywhere, it's not going to work because different communities, you know, to, to be active and be part of and be with and in place is, is going to look completely different. So in a lot of ways, it's about what fits best, right? Right. And um, th- I think this is a perfect time for, for one of my favorite sayings. Uh, in citizen advocacy, you know, you know, you, you get a lot of questions. So you get like, well, how can we do this more? Or mm-hmm. you know, what can what can be done for this, and what can be done for this? Um, and our answer is always the answer to what is who. So if if you have more people in relationships or building relationships, more more rela- uh, other relationships and more people are going to be impacted. So if you look at citizen advocacy program budgets, most of it is for salaries for uh, coordinators, the people that are actually going um, and recruiting and finding people that are at the very edges of society and then finding somebody in the local community. Um, so the more people you have doing that, then the more relationships that can, be, that can happen. Um, but, you know, it always goes back to the answer to what is who. Let's go back to the um, Supreme Court um, for a minute. Um, you mentioned the, the Olmstead case. Lois Curtis, who um, sadly passed away recently, yeah. 
um, was uh, a plaintiff in that case and was a resident here in Clarkston. Um, yeah. So I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about how you knew her um, and her work. Wow, yeah. Um, so Lois Curtis, um, first off, just the Olmstead decision itself. So the Olmstead decision was a Supreme Court decision. Um, the two plaintiffs on that case were LC and EW. LC was Lois Curtis, and EW was Elaine Wilson. And I want to make sure that that Elaine is 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 part of this conversation as well because Certainly. it was completely uh, a brave and, and hard thing to to go through this and and, and make the impact that they did, uh, fighting for their right to be free. Um, so. We've all heard of the ADA, right? The Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, that that really put in place that certain things need to be accessible and people had certain rights. But one of the things with the ADA is there's not a lot of, of teeth and grip that really said you have to do this, you have to do that. So, but it was a large part in, in hastening and helping it move quicker, the idea of deinstitutionalization. So if we look back to the the 60, you know, before before the 80s, you know, the 70s, 60s, and beyond, the primary place where people went if they had a disability or were, um, you know, deemed to have mental health issues, you know, they used totally different language back then, right. but were sent to institutions. Um, and what we learned is institutions absolutely horrific things happen to people in institutions. So the you know the there was the big movement to get the institutional institutions shut down right, um, and in that movement, it a lot happened and a lot of good happened. A lot of institutions were shut down, but institutions still exist to this day. They still exist here in Georgia and in different forms. Um, so, you know, we'll I'll, I'll I'll do this by telling Lois's story. So when when Lois was young when she was around 12 years old she she got admitted to her first psychiatric hospital um, and from that point on she she had a label of you know psychiatric disability um, you know diagnosis um, and, and from there even with a loving family and other things the system basically said you still just need to be in these places where people like you are or we like to say, isn't there a, spa a place for people like that? <laughs> Which right. if we said that about race or anything right. else, we'd be like, what are you talking about? Pejoratively, right. Um, but that still happens to this day. So, so through her time growing up, she was moved from, from one psychiatric hospital to another institution here or there. Um, eventually, uh, here at Georgia Regional, just in DeKalb County, she met Sue Jamison one day. And... And Sue, at the time, was working for Atlanta Legal Aid. Um, and and Sue, Sue met Lois, talked to her, and she asked her, you know, well, how can I help you? You know, I'm an attorney, work for Atlanta Legal Aid, what can I do? And Lois's one answer is, I want to get out of here. Um, and the two of them and Elaine Wilson there took that fight of wanting to be free and not institutionalized all the way to the Supreme Court and won. So that that happened here in Georgia. That's a story from our local our local community, and and as as Lois would say, she made it to the top. She she her her mission was to be free and to live the life that she wanted, um, and and she was able 
in her mind to really do that. Um, so in summary, the Olmstead decision gave the teeth that said every person with a disability or from age or any of that not only deserves but is entitled to the right to receive services in their own home and in their own community instead of being an institution. So when, when your grandparents or parents get older, it's not just they have to go to a nursing facility. That might be an option that your family chooses, but they have the right to, to get care in their, in their own home and to live in their own home. Um, before the Olmstead decision, people with disabilities did not even have that option. Um, they basically, when if there was something needed, they were institutionalized, separated, sent, you know, hundreds of miles away to live with other people with disabilities. Um, so that was a huge landmark in disability justice, but not disability justice, but social justice. Um, and, and Lois Curtis was a pioneer uh, icon and really one of the greatest social justice leaders that this country has ever had. Um, and, and I hope more of the, the country and the world get to know her all, um, and we're going to miss her as she, she passed away about a week ago. I, I think it's interesting, um, and thank you for sharing um, sort of Olmstead um, and Lois and Elaine's, um, Elaine's story. I think it's, it's interesting um, the, you just, the, the phrase, um, isn't there a, a place for, for people like that? which you said, uh, I think rightly, you know, we wouldn't use as regards um, people of, you know, different races um, or um, different religions um, or even, you know, increasingly people of different sexual orientations. Why is it, do you think, that language has been and sometimes is still um, used for persons with disabilities? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it's 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 a it's a lot of history and time, right? And, and we see it. Um, we see where you start, and the the othering of people is very natural. When we look at somebody for the first time, we all instinctively kind of create this like who they are based on, you know, the very little factual details that we can see. Um, and the problem is, is that to truly know somebody is you have to spend more time and you might come to see like your initial biases or initial reactions to somebody are completely different than, than who they actually are. Um, but society as a whole has, has really taught us to not go that next distance, um, especially if, if we perceive somebody to be kind of, you know, ugly or gross or maybe a threat to us um you know we're kind of naturally taught and this is this isn't something that's happened in the last 50 years or 100 years this is you know from the time humans have been on the on this planet um but what we've seen is if if we work for people to see more of each other as full human beings then that can that can stop but as a as societies and cultures we're really good at grouping people and, and we're really gr good at grouping people that are you know better in, in society terms like they're, they're better this is this is a they're over here they're the, the big center of community and here's these other people that are that are not them <laughs> right um, and that's where that language comes from so I think it's really important and, and it's really important with citizen advocacy is 
is to use different language because just natural things that we say, and, and they could be very common vernacular, things that just naturally have been picked up, um, can be very harmful um, to people. And, you know, so when, I think one of the best things, a lot of times, you know, you hear nursing home, right? Mm. A nursing home is not a home. If you think about what makes a home a home, it's not. A nursing, we use the term nursing facility because it's a facility with rooms where people live, but it's not a home. Um, it, that's just a very easy one for most people to see uh, because you know, most people have had an experience either with a grandparent or somebody that might have spent time in a nursing facility. Um, and, and and I don't know if, if you have, Noah, but mm. I remember going and visiting my great-grandparents, and it feels really weird, and it's hard to be there. And as a kid, I didn't want to be there. It smelled bad. Um, it's right. not pretty. It's not inviting. Nobody wants to be it's there. It's cold sometimes. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> if you can imagine, if, if I don't want to be there, and I know my parents don't want to be there, what about the people living there? Do you think they really want to be there? <laughs> no. And that's the difference of a home and not a home, right? A home is the place where you are safe and want to be when everything else is chaotic, right? right. So, um, and, and really that yeah, little yeah. change from home to facility is such has such power to to refocus and help people see through a different lens of how how as a society we're treating people so i don't want to say like individually we might not be treating anybody bad but there are just simple mechanisms that might lead to great harm and we have seen especially within the disability community have led to great harm in the past and still currently to this day little change opening up some of that transformation yeah. yet again um i wonder um and again maybe it's maybe we're just comparing or maybe that's just a comparison of apples to oranges um and certainly we could probably talk about this <laughs> um uh on and on and on but i wonder if the medicalization um yeah. of people with disabilities um is is part of this there's you know there's a culprit here right in the same way that you know um let's say you know it comes to matters of race you know once is widely accepted you know, that um you know there are medical differences um you know anatomical differences between people of different races um such that you know one it, such that those made one race superior one race inferior we obviously you know um, or at least the vast, vast majority of us um, don't think like that anymore. Don't. Yeah. It's not a widely held view anymore. I'm not sure you can necessarily say the same about people with disabilities. Obviously, each you know each case is their own, but there it seems to me yeah. that there's something to the the medicalization of. For sure, um, we we spend a lot of time thinking and talking about what we call the the difference between the medical model and just the human model. So the medical model has its place, right? In, in, in hospitals, in places where, where, where doctors and, and different staff and personnel, you know, there's a way that they can do their work best to really focus on making sure someone, you know, in a medical sense, lives mm -hmm. um, and, and survives. Where the problem comes is when the medical model is used in, I guess the easiest term for people to understand is the human services. So what we see is that the medical model is in place for medical things, 
But when we're talking about human services, human services are not a medical model. They're not medical. Mm -hmm. It's about people's everyday lives. Um, So, you know, we think about our everyday lives. We might get sick and need to go to a doctor. We enter into the medical model. Mm -hmm. We get the care we need, and then Mm -hmm. we leave. Uh, For someone with a disability, their experience most likely is going to be they go into the medical model, and then every part of their day and life from then on is part of the medical model. Uh, And we can see Mm -hmm. this in human services and and day programs, caregivers. You know, a lot of times, you know, I've seen and been with people and and their paid individual staff um, at the group home where they live with three or four other people with, you know, differing uh, Mm -hmm. abilities and and disabilities. Um, And the staff member's wearing scrubs. So they're in this home, right. which is supposed to be their home where they all live together. Mm-hmm. And then their person that's there to help with everyday things like, you know, making sure that, you know, they have the support to, to bathe and clean, uh, making sure they have their meals and can go mm-hmm. do other things. And that person's wearing scrubs, which directly is showing you that that system, um, and maybe they were even told to wear scrubs, is thinking in this medical model, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which the biggest danger there is it cuts off so much more of the rest of life. Like there's so much more life to live outside of thinking about, you know, health and safety. Yes, it's very important and we need services that help do that. Mm-hmm. But life doesn't end with just survival. Uh, we, we think and, and ask people to think about how can everybody live their biggest, best life. Right. Uh, and that, and that, in, in thinking that way, you end up finding more of those social protections, which combat the possibility of people being stuck in that medical model. Right. And so seemingly, um, your work with citizen advocacy is a, a big, big, I want to say push against that, but it's it's an alternative to, you yeah, know, no, I mean, that I, we're very model. happy to, to say that, you know, we, we are radical in the sense that we think about it differently than the, the big service providers, the, the medical model, the places where you, like mission ha, ha, has moved and, and, and scoped differently. Um, we, we, we think of a radical different idea. We, we think from community up inside of system down. Um, so in that, so like when we're looking to recruit a citizen advocate, we're looking to recruit somebody that's not part of the medical system. Now, mm-hmm. it could happen if they're the right person um, and and uh, have an open enough mind to see the difference and want to continue to work through that. Mm-hmm. As this is the case uh, with a, a relationship here in Clarkston mm-hmm. uh, between Eric and Kathy, um, and and I, you know, they've been in a relationship for you know ten years, and Kathy and I are still talking about these differences as she battles being trained in the medical model, but also is an amazing community member. That, that tries to find any place, not just with Eric, but more people and more and more places to, to help, and how that conflicts. Mm-hmm. So to make sure that there isn't that that possibility of, of conflict, you know, we're looking for people outside of those systems to, to match with with somebody. So so we're not looking for somebody that's an expert in disability mm-hmm. <laughs> or an <laughs> expert uh, in caregiving. Uh, we're looking right. for somebody um, that matches the person. Mm-hmm. So that really gets down to the, the process of how citizen advocacy works, right? And that's uh, the, the process that a citizen advocacy coordinator, uh, which, is, which is my job, along with it being the executive director, um, is. And it, and it starts, you, you'll always hear it starts with who we call the protege. 
So it's we call protege recruitment. So we're we're actively going and looking for people with disabilities that are experiencing um, either risk or experiencing or at risk of abuse and neglect. Um, so we're we're going to day programs, nursing facilities. Um, we're making connections in our local community to see, you know, who's seen that person down the street that they're worried about that maybe their 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 child has a disability but they never get to leave the house. Um, different places like that to to actively find people. So uh, we don't we don't go to the state of Georgia and be like refer us fifty mm -hmm. people. Give me a list of names. Yeah. <laughs> right. Give us a list of names. No, like we're actively looking within our own personal community. So going back to each office. They're, they're looking for where people are. Mm -hmm. And once we find somebody, we spend the time to get to know them the best we can. Mm -hmm. Now, we know we're not going to know every single part about them, but, but we're going you know, to try to talk to them. And it might be the first time anybody's asked, you know, what are your dreams? Like, what do you want to do and be in life? You know, um, if you're talking to an 18-year-old, like, you know, what do you think you're, what do you want to do for a job? Like, do you want to live in your own apartment? Um, or one of my favorites that I ask pretty much everybody that I meet, I'm like, if, if you could have your dream birthday celebration, what would it be? Mm -hmm. uh, just, and you just get to hear like all of these ideas of, you know, from people in all their life where they want to go. Um, and, and that's where you start learning about people as, as truly fully who they are. And we get to get to know them a little bit and then ask them if we can share some of that story with people that we know and trust. Mm -hmm. And then that's how we go searching for an advocate. Now, on the backside, we might be looking for people with certain skills. Uh -huh. You know, the, the, the disability benefits world is a lot of red tape, bureaucracy, paperwork. Sure. If someone is experiencing and needing help in that, we might be looking for somebody with a lot of technical skills mm -hmm. um, on that sense. But we have a diversity of different roles that advocates play from simply maybe being that person that goes and gets coffee or lunch mm -hmm. or answers the phone mm -hmm. to somebody that's showing up at IEP meetings for students with their family. Um, you know, Eric had an IEP you know, you had his advocate and co-advocate there, but also, you know, they worked to bring other people. So Eric and his mom were not alone fighting for Eric to get the best education he can and be safe at school uh, because that's, that's something they're even working on is making sure he's safe every day he's at school. Absolutely. Um, tell us a little bit more about Eric. Um, <clears throat> he's one of the, the protégés that's a part of yeah, Citizen Advocacy, um, right? Eric Nandobo. Um, he, he's lived here in Clarkston. He, his family came here as, as refugees uh, a long time ago. Um, Eric uses a chair to get around as well as um, you have to really focus and, and really spend a lot of time to hear what Eric is saying. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't take that time and focus to hear him, but they should because he is an absolutely brilliant 18-year-old uh, with a lot of big dreams for him and his future. Um, but yeah, the, the story with Eric, it, you know, in citizen advocacy happened way before, you know, I, w I was here. Um, but he was originally matched with Kathy Frankel um, in a citizen advocacy relationship. Um, and really, Kathy has, has, has stood beside him and his family um, over the long haul. But I think the, the best thing, she, she's done a lot of that work to, to be at IEPs to make sure that he has his right doctor's appointments and can get from place to place 
Um, even, you know, she was there and supported the family to become American citizens, um, which is really phenomenal. But the best thing, and when we're talking about relationships, yes, Kathy has done all that. But the most important thing about them is that they they love each other and they, they are they are family. So I, I think just the story that she shared with me the other day is um, when she was at her mom's funeral, um, you had the option to zoom in and Eric was there on Zoom and people asked, well, who who's that? But you can always see, mm-hmm. see their feet mm. because Eric has more control over his, his tablet and computer using oh, his feet cool. so you couldn't see his face. And her answer simply was, that's my best friend, Eric. And he was here supporting me today. So w- when we talk about a relationship, it's not just about the advocate impacting the protege's life. It is, mm-hmm. It's about reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Uh, every relationship we have, we, you know, we go to people for support, but we're there to support them as well. Um, and that's what really makes citizen advocacy, um, I think, really special and different. Mm-hmm. Is that you know we're offering people an opportunity to really be uh, to meet someone and be in a relationship that that can really impact their lives um, like any big relationship in their life is, um, right. and it's more times than not you're going to see that, and more times than not when you ask an advocate and be like this person changed and helped my life more than than anything else. Right. Um, so it's it's really unique and and different, but. Yeah, so now Eric, uh, as, as he's gotten older, <laughs> right? So mm-hmm. Kathy's been there since he was, he was small, and now he is, he is a very matured 18-year-old. Um, and Kathy is, as she would put it, she is the old Jewish woman next to him. <laughs> um, she, she identified that, you know, maybe as he's getting older, he, needs, uh, he, d- he doesn't need another mom mm-hmm. <laughs> around him. <laughs> she, she'd rather be a sister, but... Uh, so she came to us, and, right. she, and she's been really good building and, and making sure Eric gets to meet so many people. But people his age, you know, he's still in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people his age and he's met around his age have gone off to college and things like that. So she's like, she asked, she's like, can we think about looking for, for another advocate for Eric that's, that's closer to his age and, and is a guy? So he can talk mm. about guy things yeah. and, and do that. Right. Um, Be so, mutual in that sense. Yeah. Right. So it's a completely different role, mm-hmm. right? And she had been working over the last 10 years to find that person naturally, but different mechanisms and not her fault. Mm-hmm. Um, it hadn't happened. So she asked us to put that little bit of intentionality to go recruit somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, so we recruited Jeremiah um, just recently this year um, in the last few months uh, to come, come, uh, come into Eric's life. Um, and as they got to know each other, uh, Eric asked Jeremiah to play a specific role. Um, uh, first, that was to be his manager. So <laughs> Eric has his own advocacy organization, it's the American African Advocacy Gathering, um, and hopefully he'll he'll be able to to come speak about that on on, on uh, one of these podcasts someday. One of these days, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, but uh, uh, just talking and working with Jeremiah. Uh, and talking to him, he's not just the manager. Jeremiah is like, my role is his manager and hype man. <laughs> um, so they they are they are doing their things. They are both advocates. Um, they 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 are community. They they want to see change in their community. They're working in different spaces. Jeremiah has been working in a lot of you know immersive technology and and, and different things like that. 
Um, so together, they're uh, they're a co they're a cool team, um, and, and and working to to really you know build Eric and his dream for his future. That's past again past just the health and safety and, and school. So helping build his advocacy organization, uh, thinking about what college he, he's going to go to. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for a lot of people, they'd, you, you'd look at Eric and be like, well, I don't expect him to go to college. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when Dorona, my, um, who, who did my job before me, when she met Eric, he was in a special education class that basically said, like, he has no potential, like, he, he's mm -hmm. not smart, he can't do anything. Um, Dorona met Eric for 30 minutes and found out he spoke five languages. It's just people weren't listening to hear it, and he's absolutely brilliant. Um, so they're working on making sure more people see that, and he has every opportunity to become the leader that he wants to. So Eric, um, Eric sees himself as the future Martin Luther King Jr., um, and he wants to dedicate his life in that same path that Dr. King did. Um, and together, they're they're building their their network because, like I said, that takes more than just Kathy. That takes more than just Jeremiah but more and more people to be around. And, and sure. Eric's a networker and um, anybody that wants to get to know him and work with him, um, you can contact me and I'll get you a hold of, of Jeremiah, Eric, and Kathy and y'all go for it. Um, he's gonna be a cool guy. Um, he's gonna make a lot of change in our, in our country and the world, so. Um, it's like quite the squad for sure. Right. Um, yeah. So, so his, his advocates see it Mm -hmm. They know him. They see the potential, and mm -hmm. we're going to continue to work to make sure more people do. Mm -hmm. Because Eric's not going to stop. So neither are they. I think it's interesting to the again not um, to diminish anything about citizen advocacy, but the the smallness even of thirty minutes. You spend thirty minutes with a person, and you realize um, come to find that they're they're a polyglot. Um, <laughs> yeah, that they have. Um, that kind of mastery over something like as 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 complex and intricate as language. Yeah. Um, Remind you, he was probably eight or nine years old. Even even more, <laughs> right? even when, more when she first met him, impressive. Like, uh, I'm he, floored. He's eighteen right yeah. now. So, yeah. <laughs> like I said, I'm I'm 23 and I uh, I struggle with the one language sometimes. So right. yeah. no, I love it. I'm, I'm always around different languages, and I my brain does not work that way. It's not my gift. Yeah. Um. I'm but I. But it might not be my gift to speak languages, but I know how to communicate with people. So whether they, whether Certainly. you use words to communicate or you, or you don't, um, it doesn't matter. We can all communicate with each other if we just sit and try. Certainly. And that, that gets me thinking too about um, mediums um, of communication um, and the role that art um, plays. Um, yeah. I know we've, we've spoken um, Lois was an artist. Um, I think you said Eric is an artist as as well. Um, uh, Eric and Jeremiah made some art together. Yeah. So <laughs> there you go. I don't know if he. I think he would just call himself an advocate, uh, advocate and uh, activist more than artist right now. But <laughs> to to what extent do you find then that 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 medium is Im important or impactful in the way that it opens up avenues maybe for some folks. Um, who you know may not speak five languages, may not speak at all, may not be may, may not be verbal, um, like uh, many of us are. Yeah. Um, 
what what role does um, visual art or digital art, um, what role does that have to play in disability advocacy? Yeah, well, I think it really comes down to um, when, when people have the opportunity to explore and express their gifts, um, you know, that's the most important thing. And, you know, it, and it's not it's not about anything else it's that they are an artist or they are a performer or they're a public speaker um you know it's it's the same thing like right now i say you know i'm i'm a podcaster i'm on a podcast (laughs) you you never know um but art i think has a special place and and it's been big in citizen advocacy for a long time and i think it's it's the natural thing of what art is Mm -hmm. right just like storytelling it's an opportunity for for expression um, that's different than what might be what people might cons- consider every day. So, you know, some people are really good at, at public speaking and talking um, with that have disabilities and that don't. Um, and, and some people aren't. So I think it's art and the different forms of art are just possibilities of where people can express themselves and, and help people to hear what they're not hearing. Um, but it depends on their gift. So take, take Lois Curtis, you know, she, she grew up in an in institutionalized setting. She never mm-hmm. even had the opportunity to, to do any art. And when, um, and then, you know, it's absolutely incredible when she became free, her case was officially closed, uh, by the state of Georgia after Olmstead. Mm-hmm. Um, she got opportunities to start drawing, um, and, and start, start, utilizing her artistic expression um and what happened we happened to find out is she's just extremely talented um and, and talented and, and that you know it's a good time to mention grover who who was who was matched with lois as a citizen advocate um when grover saw her art he didn't just see what a lot of people saw like the scribbles are the, this or that but he saw uh, you know, from the beginning, you know, she is a magical and extremely talented self-made artist, mm. an untrained artist. Um, and what you saw is, you know, he simply in their relationship, a lot of it started as he set up this room with this big tape in his dining room and it became Lois's studio. So when Lois had come over, they, they didn't even have to talk. Like, mm. but there was, you know, all sorts of things for her to do and, and for her to create her art. Mm-hmm. Um, so Lois has has been an artist that sold her work. Um, her work has traveled. She she got opportunities to travel. Um, I think one of the most the fun things is during the Obama administration, mm-hmm. um, she got to go to D.C. and present Obama with one of her paintings, and that some of her work is in the Smithsonian now at this time. But you know that was just her painting and drawing and visual art. You know, mm-hmm. um, so I got I got to finally meet Lois. Um, couple weeks ago um i got to grover hadn't gotten to see her for 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 several years since 2018 but once once um she got her diagnosis of of cancer um they invited some of these people that had been around her Mm -hmm. uh and and really loved her and were uh to come over and i got to go with grover and we what we what we ended up doing is lois uh over the last few years have been focusing on writing songs and singing really? and being a composer. Um, and for about an hour and a half, she wrote songs. We wrote them down and then we recorded them. So, um, and I think what is the amazing part about Lois as an artist is 
you know, she had a lot to tell and she had a lot to give to our society about how we could treat people better and how people should be treated. And she used her art and creativity and that spirit to, to get that across, um, knowing that people might not just listen to what she said using her words. Spoke volumes right up to the very end, it sounds like. And I, I, I think we'll continue to speak volumes for a long time to come. Um, all right. Aaron, Aaron Lichke, final word? Anything else you'd like to impart to our listeners? Um, yeah, I think just, you know, all I can ask is, you know, be open to go meet somebody that, that you don't know. Um, you know, uh, you're going to have your initial biases or instincts. Uh, and I just, I think if you, if you push through that, you might meet somebody that can change your life. Um, and you don't need citizen advocacy to do that. Um, we, we can all do that ourselves. So um, final word is, yeah, take, take that itch to go meet somebody new and get to know mm -hmm. them. Maybe, maybe go grab a cup of coffee. <laughs> there you go. All right. Thank you, Aaron. Um, and if people want to find you, where um, on TikTok or wherever you may or may not be, where should they uh, look for you? All right. Yeah. Um, well, the easiest way, and I'm going to be the, this weird person, but my actual cell phone number is <laughs> give me a call any time. Um, if I don't answer, I'll, I'll call you back soon, I promise. But I, uh, give me a call. My number is 770 713 8624 um, and if not there then our website would be the next best place uh, on there you can find my calendar link and contact information um, and that is www.citizenadvocacyatlantadecab.org